Did you know that gestational hypertension and preeclampsia are conditions almost unique to humans? In other mammalian species, the incidence of these pregnancy-related disorders is extremely low. This may be due to differences in the development of the human placenta, which is designed to optimize oxygen and nutrient diffusion between mother and fetus to support the growth of its large brain. However, abnormal implantation of the placenta can sometimes occur, which can lead to reduced placental perfusion. This hypoperfusion, when combined with maternal factors such as hypertension, diabetes, and increased BMI, can lead to the development of preeclampsia. Preeclampsia has been known to medicine since the time of Hippocrates. However, recent changes in human lifestyle may have increased the global incidence of gestational hypertension and consequently preeclampsia over the last few decades. As a result, it's important to have an idea of how to manage hypertension in pregnancy, even outside of obstetrics and gynecology. Today, our pregnant patient is hypertensive, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, Feeling the Pressure, Hypertensive Disorders in Pregnancy. Okay, time for our minute physiology. Approximately 7% of pregnancies in Canada are affected by hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, which include gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. What is happening in those pregnancies? Well, we don't entirely know, but it likely involves both maternal and placental factors. Studies have shown that in preeclampsia, the placenta does not develop its normal, large, tortuous vascular channels, which may be because of abnormal implantation. This results in placental hypoperfusion and ischemia, and why this occurs is due to a combination of environmental, immunological, and genetic factors. Consequently, the placenta releases factors such as inflammatory cytokines into the maternal bloodstream, causing generalized endothelial dysfunction. Pre-existing endothelial cell damage from pre-gestational vascular diseases like hypertension and diabetes might explain why these conditions are risk factors for developing preeclampsia. It's unclear if gestational hypertension is an early stage of preeclampsia, or if it has a different pathophysiology, as 10 to 50% of women initially diagnosed with gestational hypertension go on to develop preeclampsia. Nevertheless, they share many of the same risk factors. Remember that pre-existing endothelial cell damage is thought to be part of the underlying pathophysiology, so it makes sense that factors with the highest relative risk include pre-existing diabetes, chronic hypertension, chronic kidney disease, and some autoimmune diseases such as lupus. Obesity and advanced maternal age also put women at increased risk, presumably due to less healthy vasculature. In addition, a past history of preeclampsia, especially preeclampsia with severe features, increases the risk eightfold in a subsequent pregnancy. Finally, nulliparity has been consistently found to be a significant predisposing factor for preeclampsia, although why this is the case is unclear. In these high-risk patients, low-dose aspirin given before 16 weeks of gestation can reduce the risk of preeclampsia. Alright, so now that we've talked about basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. Before we take our patient's blood pressure, remember that not every high blood pressure reading means that your patient has preeclampsia. 
the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy can be differentiated by their time of onset and the presence of proteinuria. There are three major categories. One, the first is chronic or pre-existing hypertension, which is hypertension that precedes pregnancy, is present before 20 weeks gestation, or persists longer than 12 weeks postpartum. We use prior to 20 weeks because many pregnant women have never had their blood pressure taken before they became pregnant, and blood pressure should only fall in the first half of pregnancy, with a nadir around 20 weeks. Two, the second is gestational hypertension, which develops after 20 weeks of gestational age. Importantly, there is no proteinuria or other end organ involvement. And finally, three, there is preeclampsia. Many patients with preeclampsia classically present after 34 weeks gestation, but approximately 10% develop it at less than 34 weeks, and about 5% develop postpartum preeclampsia. We will go over the symptoms a bit later. If untreated, preeclampsia can lead to eclampsia, which presents with seizures and is an obstetrical emergency. It is important to screen for hypertension in every clinic visit with a pregnant patient, and accurate blood pressure readings are essential to appropriately recognize and treat hypertension in pregnancy. As a brief recap, women should have their blood pressure taken after at least five minutes of rest in a quiet environment and be in a sitting position, feet flat on the ground, with the arms supported at the level of the heart. Remember that caffeine or nicotine within 30 minutes of measurement can increase readings. Hypertension in pregnancy is defined as a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 140 millimeters of mercury and or a diastolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 90 millimeters of mercury. At least two measurements should be taken at least 15 minutes apart and averaged. A non-severe elevated blood pressure reading that is between 140 over 90 and 160 over 110, should be repeated at the same visit, at least 15 minutes apart from the first measurement, to decrease the likelihood of white coat hypertension. Let's say that the pregnant patient you are seeing has a blood pressure of 150 over 90, and your concurrent assessment of the fetus is normal. Our next step is to evaluate for any signs of preeclampsia. The clinical manifestations of preeclampsia are highly variable. Approximately 25% of affected women develop one or more of the following nonspecific symptoms. Persistent and or severe headache, often not responsive to analgesia, right upper quadrant or epigastric pain, altered mental status, dyspnea, and visual abnormalities which are classically blurred vision or flashing lights. A history and physical exam looking for these features should be done, as these generally represent the severe end of the disease spectrum and warrant hospitalization for further workup. Seizure in a preeclamptic woman is a diagnosis of eclampsia and requires urgent inpatient management and stabilization. If you remember one blood pressure threshold from this episode, remember 160 over 110. A blood pressure greater than or equal to 160 over 110 millimeters of mercury is defined as severe hypertension in pregnancy and requires urgent antihypertensive therapy as it is considered an obstetrical emergency. Severe hypertension is associated with increased risk of maternal stroke in pregnancy, increased maternal hospital stay, and various fetal complications. The specific antihypertensive management of severe hypertension is beyond the scope of this podcast, 
But remember, if your patient's blood pressure is over 160 over 110, assess for signs and symptoms of end organ damage and send your patient to labor and delivery emergently. Preeclampsia is defined as gestational hypertension, that is greater than 140 over 90, with new proteinuria or one of the nonspecific symptoms mentioned previously, which represent end organ dysfunction. All pregnant women should be assessed for proteinuria, which can be done by urinary dipstick testing when the suspicion of preeclampsia is low. If the urinary dipstick is greater than or equal to 1 plus, significant proteinuria should be suspected and further testing through a 24-hour urine collection can be done. A CBC, uric acid, creatinine, and liver panel should also be ordered to rule out HELP syndrome, which is characterized by hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. We covered general management strategies for severe hypertension, so now let's talk about what to do with blood pressures between 140 over 90 and 160 over 110. Antihypertensive therapy should be initiated, and initial monotherapy options include oral labetalol, nifedipine, or methyl dopa. For specific drug dosing, check out our blog post on www.theinternetwork.com. ACE inhibitors and ARBs should be avoided due to the risk of adverse fetal effects. Antihypertensive therapy should be titrated to keep systolic blood pressure at 130 to 155 millimeters of mercury and diastolic blood pressure at 80 to 105 millimeters of mercury. The 2015 CHIPS trial showed that there was no difference in major adverse perinatal outcomes when targeting a diastolic blood pressure of less than 100 millimeters of mercury compared to a target of less than 85 millimeters of mercury. But less than 85 may be better, as there is a significantly lower frequency of severe maternal hypertension. We'll briefly go over guidelines for timing of delivery. For women with gestational hypertension over 37 weeks gestation, delivery within days should be considered. Otherwise, delivery at less than 37 weeks gestational age should be considered if there are repeated episodes of severe hypertension despite treatment with three classes of antihypertensives, or if there is any evidence of maternal or fetal compromise. For women with preeclampsia, the only cure is delivery, so consultation with an obstetrician is recommended. With all this said, if you're in internal medicine, you will most likely encounter patients when they are postpartum. It has been shown that women who develop gestational hypertension and preeclampsia are at a higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease later in life. Furthermore, women with severe or recurrent preeclampsia are more likely to develop premature cardiovascular disease, whereas mild preeclampsia is associated with the development of cardiovascular disease after menopause. Therefore, it's important to screen for cardiovascular risk factors postpartum. This may involve calculation of lifetime cardiovascular disease risk and screening for metabolic syndrome, with follow-up implementation of lifestyle and diet modifications. Time for our Medicine Minute. Spoiler alert! In the TV show Downton Abbey, one of the characters dies from eclampsia shortly after childbirth. At the dawn of the 20th century, maternal mortality from eclampsia was around 20-30%. to 30%. It's unclear how prevalent the use of blood pressure cuffs were back then, but in the show, preeclampsia was diagnosed based on ankle edema, 
proteinuria, an undersized fetus, and altered mental status. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Feeling the Pressure, Hypertensive Disorders in Pregnancy. This episode was written by Stephanie Chan, internal medicine resident, and Dr. Lisa Nguyen, general internal medicine with clinical expertise in obstetric medicine, and Dr. Stephen Montague, general internal medicine. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos. This podcast was produced and recorded by Zara Morali. Music production by Laxman Zavantha Mohan. If you liked this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. If you are being redeployed to internal medicine or about to start internal medicine clerkship or residency, please check out our internal medicine base camp available on our website, theinternetwork.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.